Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 47, the book of Matthew, chapter 13. Chapter 13 of Matthew begins this way. That same day, Yeshua went out of the house and sat down by the lake, and but such a large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat, and he sat there while the crowd stood on the shore. He told them many things in parables. From here forward in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to find Jesus employing parables in His teachings. Now some Bible academics and commentators will say, that he has already used parables when speaking to the crowds that seem to be following him everywhere, perhaps making up as much as one-third of the words recorded that came from him. But therein lies the rub. What is a parable? What is not? And what is the difference between a parable and merely an illustration that uses metaphors to make a point. Now, perhaps even more, does this difference really matter in how we're to interpret those words? So before we delve into the meat of Matthew chapter 13, it is necessary for us to understand the literary form of parables so that we can learn what to take from them and what not to take from them. This is a rather complex matter, but I'm going to do my best to not make it too extensive or, or nor so hard to understand. Even so, hang in there with me, because little is more important to Christianity than Jesus' words, and little is more important within Jesus' words than His parables. Now, and the first thing to understand is, Christ was not the inventor of parables. Even though if it's not directly taught that way, although often it is, it is heavily implied within Christianity that not only was it He who had created them, He was the only one who ever used them. Now much of what I'm going to discuss with you today comes from a seminar I attended years ago as well as information gleaned from the works of various notable scholars, such as uh, David Flusser, Brad Young, Stephen Notley, and Zev Safrai. Now for those of you who want to go into more depth on the matter of parables, and especially those created by the ancient rabbis, I recommend you obtain the book titled Parables of the Sages. It's published by Carta. So, what's a parable? Zev Safrai says that parables are short stories with moral insight and a clear aim. Now, while that abbreviated definition is certainly the case, that just as certainly is far from all we need to know about parables to identify them and then to comprehend their, their essence and their meaning. The first thing we need to understand is that parables belong exclusively and uniquely 
to the realm of Jewish culture and to their sages. Dr. Flusser would narrow that down a bit and argue that they belong exclusively within the realm of rabbinic Judaism. And from this basic understanding, two critical factors emerge. One is that although the institution of rabbinic Judaism did not exist in Yeshua's era, it was not far away from becoming a reality. The concept of the religion of the Jews being led by teachers and leaders that did not hold the official title of rabbi, because the office of rabbi as we think of it today was not yet formed, were nonetheless at times called rabbi, but that designation was from an honorary, not an official sense. As an example, in modern English, we can say that our mother or father, perhaps, taught us important things when we were young. So they were important teachers in our lives. And yet, that in no way means that they held the formal paid profession of being an educator, an officially recognized office of teacher. So for the most part, when we think of Jesus, even of Paul, while no doubt they were at times called rabbis in the sense of being teachers and masters over a flock of disciples, historically the term rabbi hadn't yet become elevated into this official office that held actual recognized civil or religious authority as it would become in only a few decades. Now the next point is that parables can only be understood within the context of Jewish society, Jewish religion, Jewish thought, and the Jewish language, Hebrew. Parables were necessarily written in Hebrew and no other languages. That Christ's parables, as with all of His words, have been handed down to us through the Greek language, later translated to Latin, later still from the Greek or the Latin into English, the original message and purpose can at times become obscured or lost. And this is because parables are based 100% on Jewish thought and language that originated within a Jewish cultural setting. To take them outside of that basic context begins the process of degrading them into something they are not. Now to try to make sense of them in a Gentile world, much allegory was employed, starting with some of the early church fathers as early as perhaps the 4th or 5th centuries. What is allegorical interpretation? It means, it's a means by which the biblical words are assumed to be symbols symbols used to reveal a hidden meaning or maybe a, a broad and general moral principle. Thus an allegorical interpretation allows for the possibility of multiple meanings, all of which are considered equally valid. 
by the 7th and 8th centuries, allegory was the main teaching and preaching tool used by Christian leaders and academics to interpret not just Jesus' parables, but everything we find in the New Testament. In fact, many, perhaps most, modern Bible commentators will say that a parable is itself little more than Jewish allegory. Now the proof that parables are a uniquely Jewish form of expression is they're not to be found in the Greek or Roman world of the first century, nor before, nor in the decades following except in the rarest of occasions. Some have said that Aesop's fables that were written by a Greek man around 600 BC are essentially parables. And while they may seem similar to Hebrew parables, from the far view could perhaps be labeled as such, they are not really the same kind of literature. The main difference is that these ancient fables did not contain God. God's will or God's character are God's promises. These were the framework upon which all Jewish parables were created. But more to the point of what we're studying, Aesop's fables were not called parabolis in Greek, nor were they classified that way. Parabolis eventually became a Greek title used in the Jewish diaspora and in the early Christian world to refer to these Jewish short stories produced from Jewish culture and and literature, including from the New Testament. So since the English word parable is taken from the Greek word parabolis, then what would Jews have called these Jewish short stories that contained a moral or they illustrated a truth? It was almost certainly the Hebrew word mashal. mashal. Now mashal is found in several places in the Bible as a somewhat general term that could mean a prophecy, a riddle, maybe an authoritative statement. It was sometimes used to denote a virtue, at other times an important and instructive saying. All right, let's pause here for a moment. I don't want to cause confusion by what I'm telling you because when it comes to language, there are things that might sound complicated, but we all inherently know how it works. Just that we we rarely ever think about it. It begins with the reality that all languages evolve over time. They all do. The Hebrew of Moses, that wasn't identical with the Hebrew of Jesus. The Hebrew of Jesus is not identical with the conversational Hebrew spoken in Israel today. There are Hebrew words that used to exist, they're no longer used. There are new Hebrew words that didn't exist in ancient times. The English of the 13th or 14th century would not even be understood by modern day English speakers and vice versa. 
In fact, language can evolve rapidly, especially in the age of technical innovation in which we live. Words like astronaut, they never existed prior to the 1950s. The term politically correct is just about three decades or so old. And yet, as unknown as these words were as recent, let's say, as World War II, they are part of our everyday English language and nobody asks, well, what does this mean? So when we find the word mashal rendered in the prophets of the Old Testament, it didn't mean exactly the same thing as it did by Christ's day. By Christ's day, mashal mostly came to mean what we now refer to as parables, even though when it's used in its technical sense, it also continued to mean what it had always meant, especially as, as it was used in the Old Testament. The context of the conversation and who was having it, that determined exactly how to understand the meaning of the term. Now, one of the most important aspects of how to identify a parable is that it specifically calls itself a mashal. It's self-defining. It says what it is so that no mistake can be made as to its liter literary genre or purpose. That is, it is important that a mashal, a parable, be identified as such so that we know it's not meant as a, a poem, it's not history, it's not narrative. Because proper interpretation depends upon recognizing which of each of these categories of literature is being spoken or written. So one is not to take the meaning of a parable as though the characters actually exist or will ever exist, or that the events depicted actually happened or will ever happen. So in order for one to properly interpret a parable, it must firmly first be recognized as being a parable and not something else. This fact appears immediately as Matthew chapter 13 opens as the Jewish Matthew makes it so very clear by identifying just what kind of speech category Jesus is about to say. He writes, He, Christ, told them many things in Mashal, in parables. Now another important aspect for recognizing a true Jewish parable as opposed to merely a, a simple metaphor or an illustration is that there is usually a word formula utilized that introduces it, or it's contained within the body of the parable. Parables often begin with the words, a parable is told. Just as often, especially within the rabbinic parables, of which there are hundreds, we'll find the telling words, to what can the matter be compared? Dr. Stephen Notley says that sometimes this is even abbreviated to similar to. The most formal method favored by the rabbis is mashal 
Lemah Hadabar Domei, a parable to what may the matter be compared. Another way to recognize a true parable is that there is usually, but not always, an obvious, obvious moral or application that it centers around. The story, along with its moral, is told in terms of an already commonly understood reality within Jewish culture. Even if that reality is highly embellished or exaggerated in order to draw the listener's attention and interest, it is something told that's meant to be remembered and then retold. Almost all parables created by the rabbis involved a king, a sick person, or a woman, although none of them were named because that kind of detail was unimportant to the parable's meaning. Rather, these were generic, these were stereotypical kings and sick people and women and not actual ones. Yeshua, on the other hand, deviated from this. His parables involve characters from among the common people. So he employed images of maidens and field workers and agriculture. And just as with the rabbis, so were his characters generic people in stereotypical roles. So the way a parable works is that it draws a comparison between the moral or application intended by the teller and an invented word picture that is used to turn the teaching into a memorable and usually enjoyable short story. The point of it is to teach something of divine importance by means of making the complex or even the spiritual into something an average Jew could comprehend by being given a mental picture of it. Now notice I did not say the average person could comprehend, but rather the average Jew. See, a Gentile had and continues to have difficulty understanding the meaning of a rabbinic parallel even some of Christ's uh, rather parable even some of Christ's because they were told in Jewish cultural terms something nearly all gentiles wouldn't be familiar with therefore this begs a question why if the underlying nature of parables was generally only understandable by Jews, would Jesus employ parables if He intended that His words were to also reach the ears of Gentiles? Now as much as this might bother or even rile the typical Gentile Christian community, remember that Yeshua's audience during His lifetime was invariably Jews, and most often the common people of the Galilee. He did not deal with Gentiles, 
nor speak his teaching to to Gentiles. This is not my speculation. Matthew 15, 23-24, A woman from Canaan who was living there came to him, pleading, Sir, have pity on me, son of David. My daughter is cruelly held under the power of demons, but Yeshua didn't say a word to her. And then his Talmudim, his disciples came to him, and they urged him, send her away. She is following us. She keeps pestering us with all of her crying. He said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, he indeed did relent in this story and briefly addressed the the Gentile woman and even complimented her, but it was a rare case that was completely outside the scope of his immediate mission. So it fell to Paul, to later disciples, still to us, to take Yeshua's message to the Gentile world in a way Gentiles can understand it. However, changing the meaning of Yeshua's parables by means of allegory was not and is not the solution to it. First, though, the original meaning has to be rediscovered. Now, when it comes to the parables of Yeshua in the New Testament, they were used especially to reveal the divine spiritual dimension by using elements of the physical world that we can see and we can hear, we can touch. And when teaching the Torah, I've spoke of what I call the reality of duality. See, the concept is that because the Creator wove the same governing dynamics and principles into all of His creation, both the unseen spiritual dimension and the tangible physical dimension, then we can observe in the natural things of the world all around us important truths about the operation and realities of the spiritual world, a spiritual world world we cannot observe. Thus we could say that the tangible physical things of this world that we can see with our eyes, that we can know by means of our several senses, it's a shadow of the spiritual world. And as we all know through experience, while a shadow reveals only an outline of the object that's casting it, yet the shadow does help us to understand the approximate shape of the object. So a parable can be likened to a visible shadow of an invisible divine object or purpose. A parable can also reveal the shadowy outline of future events that exist only in God's promises until they happen. Yet there is a caution with which we must approach a parable. Should we try to color in further details from our imaginations, the odds that will be correct are remote. It's from such folly that bad doctrine gets created. So our faith includes trusting that the shadow, the parable, is real and true, even though what it reveals to us is 
incomplete. Never should we draw too many conclusions from viewing only a shadow. Our earthly experiences ought to be proof enough of this. So a parable is not to be treated as a Christmas tree upon which we can hang any manner of ornament. Due to the allegorical method of teaching the Bible that's arisen over the centuries within Christianity, the impression is made that there are any number of correct solutions or messages that can be taken from any one of Jesus' parables. This is not so, because that's not the nature of a parable. A parable has but one message and moral to which it aims. One. A parable's final meaning can only be deciphered when taking it as a whole, as opposed to finding several meanings by examining the several elements used to construct the story. By that I mean that within the parable story there indeed could be a, a few interesting connections between the moral of the parable and the many characters and the details used along the way to bring the listener to the parable's message. But those connections along the way never affect the outcome that brings us to the single point that a parable teller is making. I want to emphasize this, the point of any parable is but one thing, and it is not intended to be remolded to suit the interpreter or the circumstance. Now, Because of this underlying concept and purpose of a parable, in the Jewish world of Christ and later, parables were generally not used to help explain the legal matters of Jewish law, halakha, nor were they generally used when the Torah was taught. Now there were a few exceptions to that rule, but too few to consider them as anything but outliers. Parables are also not to be found in the Dead Sea Scrolls or the several books of the Apocrypha. We simply don't find parables existing as a typical means of expression and teaching in the Jewish world except in the New Testament and in the writings of the rabbis. So there is little way around concluding that there was this observable teaching method connection between Jesus and the rabbis, the teachers of His day, which were certain of the Pharisees at that time. Thus the crowds who heard Yeshua's parables no doubt expected them. They were used to them, because the use of parables existed only within the synagogue culture, as led by Pharisees. Parables did not exist within the temple culture, as led by the priests. Such a thing ought to not surprise us. Jesus Himself was a product of the synagogue culture, not of the temple culture. In the end, I think the point I'd like most to make 
is that a parable is intended to help us understand what God is like. Yeshua, of all people, can help us understand God His Father best. He also knew that parable, mashal, was the best way to communicate this kind of understanding to the common folks. And at the same time, He was a Torah teacher extraordinaire. As was customary of the Judaism of His day, He did not use parables to teach the Torah. He limited His parables to helping His listeners understand God's nature and God's kingdom in a very personal and relational way. So, just as Yeshua cannot be understood apart from His Jewishness, neither can we understand His parables apart from their Jewishness. Okay. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We are going to read the whole chapter. Matthew chapter 13. That same day Yeshua went out of the house and sat down by the lake. But such a large crowd gathered all around him that he got into a boat and sat there while the crowd stood on the shore. He told them many things in parables. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some seed fell alongside the path, and the birds came up. Uh, came, uh, birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky patches where there was not much soil. It sprouted quickly, but the soil was shallow. But when the sun had risen, the young plants were scorched, and since their roots were not deep, they dried up. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Others fell into rich soil and produced grain a hundred, sixty, thirty times as much as had been sown. Those who have ears, let them hear. Then the Talmudim, his disciples, came and asked Yeshua, Why are you speaking to them in parables? And he answered, Because it has been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. It's not been given to them. For anyone who has something will be given more so that they will have plenty, but from anyone who has nothing, even what he does have will be taken away. Here is why I speak to them in parables. They look without seeing and listen without hearing or understanding. That is, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Yeshiao, Isaiah, which says, You will keep on hearing but never understand, keep on seeing but never perceive, because the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, so as to not to see with their eyes or hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and do teshuva to repent, so that I could heal them. But you, how blessed are your eyes, because they see, your ears, because they hear. Yes, indeed, I tell you that many a prophet, many a sadik, Long to see the things you are seeing, but did not see them, and to hear the things you are hearing, but did not hear them. So, listen to what the parable of the sower means. Whoever hears the message about the kingdom, but doesn't understand it, it's like the seed sown along the path. The evil one comes and seizes what was sown in his heart. 
The seed sown on rocky ground is like a person who hears the message and accepts it with joy at once, but has no root in himself. So he stays on for a while, but as soon as some trouble or persecution arises on account of the message, he immediately falls away. Now the seed sown among thorns stands for someone who hears the message, but is choked by the worries of the world and the deceitful glamour of wealth, so it produces nothing. However, what was sown on rich soil is one who hears the message and understands it. Such a person will surely bear fruit a hundred or sixty or thirty times what was sown. Yeshua put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, then went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads of grain, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where have the weeds come from? And he answered, An enemy has done this. And the servants asked him, Then do you want us to go and pull them up? But he said, No. Because if you pull up the weeds, you might uproot some of the wheat at the same time. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers to collect the weeds first, tie them in bundles to be burned, but to gather the wheat into my barn. Yeshua put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man takes and sows in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it grows up, it is larger than any garden plant and becomes a tree, so that the birds flying about come and nest in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with a bushel of flour, then waited until the whole batch of dough rose. All of these things Yeshua said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will say what has been hidden since the creation of the universe. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house. His Talmudim approached him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the people who belong to the kingdom, and the weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who sows them is the adversary. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. They will collect out of His kingdom all the things that cause people to sin and all the people who are far from Torah. And they will throw them into the fiery furnace where people will wail and grind their teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man found it, hid it again, then in great joy he went and sold everything he owned and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for fine pearls. And on finding one very valuable pearl, he went away, sold everything he owned and bought it. Once more, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the lake that caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen brought the net up into the shore, sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad fish away. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will go forth and separate the evil people from among the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where they will wail 
and grind their teeth. Have you understood all these things? Yes, they answered. He said to them, So then, every Torah teacher who has been made into a disciple for the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a home who brings out of his storage room both new things and old. When Yeshua had finished these parables, He left. He went to His hometown. There He taught them in their synagogue in a way that astounded them. So they asked, Where where do this man's wisdom and miracles come from? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Miriam and his brothers Yaakov, Yosef, Shimon, and Judah? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all of this? And they took offense at him. But Yeshua said to them, The only place people don't respect a prophet is in his hometown and in his own house. And he did a few miracles there because of their lack of trust. This chapter opens with the words, that same day. Same day as what? Remove the chapter markings and it becomes clear. It's the same day as everything we read in chapter 12 occurred. That day is Shabbat. Chapter 12 was the story of the Sabbath controversy, where some Pharisees were upset with Christ and some of His followers for for plucking grain from a field and eating it. The Pharisees considered this a, a violation of Sabbath day laws. These laws were not so much laws of the Torah, but rather Jewish laws, laws and rules made by the Pharisees over what could and couldn't happen on the Sabbath. And having a, after having a heated discussion with those Pharisees, then upon his mother, Miriam, Mary, appearing along with some of his siblings, chapter 13 says that Jesus left the immediate area and went to the lake. According to Matthew, it was still Shabbat. Therefore, wherever precisely it was that he was arguing with these Pharisees, it could not have been far from the Sea of Galilee, also known as the lake, because it needed to be within a Sabbath day's walk. But then Matthew adds that Jesus went out of the house and then to the lake. So this is a strong implication that he was back in his current town of residence, Capernaum, and so the location of the Sabbath controversy had to have taken place in the field pretty nearby. The ever-present crowd of people followed Jesus down to the lake, so He got into a boat. It wasn't to escape them, as He had done before, rather it was to likely to give Him a better platform from which to speak without having people crushing in all around Him and therefore allowing more of the crowd to hear Him instead of only those nearest to Him. He decides to speak to the people concerning the Kingdom of God, which has been His main interest. Now remember, to this point in Matthew's Gospel, Yeshua has not revealed Himself as Israel's Messiah. So the good news He's been preaching and His twelve disciples were sent out to preach, this was not the good news of salvation in Christ. Rather, until now, the good news was only 
that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. One must ask, why this parable about a sower and some seeds at this time? I think the reason is that Yeshua has to this point had relatively few successes, but many failures in getting people to respond to Him. See, in fact, He was at permanent odds now with the synagogue leadership who always seemed to be present among the crowds. These leaders were there to dispute Him at every turn. They came not to listen. They came to indict Him. They had their own agenda. And it was to be sure that all common Jews obeyed the traditions of the elders, Jewish law, that they held so firmly. They saw their job priority as maintaining the status quo to defend their man-made doctrines. They were not open to learning. Most of the Pharisees, not all, were closed-minded and not teachable. Now let us also not assess that Jesus felt He had been succeeding in His efforts simply because of the huge crowds He not only gathered, but that seemed to follow Him everywhere He went. The reality is that instead of Him being happy for it, we have read of His disappointment. So if there were huge crowds so anxious to hear Him and follow Him around, why was He disappointed? I mean, weren't the crowds large enough? No. It was because these crowds were not coming to hear, obey, and have their minds changed. They were coming to have their circumstances changed for the better. They were coming to this extraordinary Sodic holy man who could heal any disease, bring hearing to the deaf, sight to the blind, expel demons from people. They wanted to have this miracle healer fix their infirmities of every variety, which He did, because He had compassion on these people, and also to fulfill the ancient prophecies about Him. Yet, clearly, Yeshua fully expected that these miracles coupled with His teaching on the Torah and His preaching regarding the arrival of the Kingdom of God would have had a different result. Sincere repentance. I mean, what a lesson to us is evident here. First, merely hearing God's message of truth is far from a guarantee that it will be accepted or heeded or lead to repentance. Second, if Yeshua had been anything like the typical synagogue leaders of his day, and he would have been ecstatic over all these people showing up and hanging around. How famous that would have made him. How well known and sought after. I mean, imagine all the ways his social status and influence with the wealthy and the powerful and how probably personal wealth would have greatly increased. I mean, what the people learned, how close to God's intent they conducted their lives as a measure of sincere repentance, that would have been secondary. 
drawing sizable crowds was the issue. While in no way would I indict an entire institution, within Christianity too often the size of the crowd is the primary measure of success to church leadership. In fairness, I doubt there's a pastor worth his salt that doesn't pray for more people to come to worship at his church, and who tirelessly works with his staff to facilitate that hope as much as it depends on them. We can't help but question ourselves if no one responds or if just a few come. But we're not Jesus. Jesus drew increasingly overwhelming crowds that had the result of alarming the competition. Yet that wasn't the result he hoped for. Even though disappointed in the response of the people, Yeshua did not question his message because it's the one his father gave to him to preach. Even so, he keenly observed the dismal rate of response of the people, not in terms of how it affected his personal status, but rather in terms of how it affected them. I have to continually remind myself, and now I'm speaking to all leaders of Christian fellowships and pastors and rabbis of congregations. See, our job is to speak the gospel truth, to teach the Bible honestly and in context, and to live out God's commandments and His example for others to follow. Upon that, we allow the chips to fall where they may. Our job before God is to be a servant to Him and a shepherd to His people. If we do that faithfully, then we can rest easy as the response of the people is in God's hands. We are His messengers, but we are not the Holy Spirit. We can diligently and passionately teach God's words, a word rather, and tell folks of the truth of salvation in Yeshua. What we cannot do is to bring one soul into God's kingdom based upon our will and intent. This is not to say we can't do a poor job or behave in a way that ruins our witness. Our job requires us to prepare well and to serve diligently. But what we read in Matthew 13 reveals that the size of the crowds that come to hear us can be deceiving. The presence of people does not necessarily equal their right motive for being there. And the lack of their presence does not necessarily mean a failure of leadership. I mean, if only a relatively few people that Yeshua personally healed, or they were eyewitnesses to His miracles, or they were present to hear His incomparable wisdom, came to trust in what He said or who He was, why would the rest of us expect to have greater success as measured by counting people? So now with all that in mind, Yeshua presents the pressing crowd 
with what has become known in Christendom as the parable of the sower. In this exceptional instance, we don't have to wonder at what the parable is telling us, because after telling it to the crowd, he explains it to his disciples, which one can reasonably assume means the same group of disciples that was plucking heads of grain in chapter 12. Now, I suppose if I was giving this parable a name, it would be the parable of the soil, not the parable of the sower. Because this is more about the soil, the ground, less about the sower of the seeds. In this in the complete Jewish Bible, this sower is called a farmer. Now, structurally, we find that this parable is based on four cases of what happens between the seed and the soil it falls upon. So, this is a story of response and reaction, as well as interaction. That is, the seed is sown, but how the ground reacts to the seed. That's the point of the parable. So these four cases are represented by four kinds of soil. The parable is so short, let's reread it. Matthew 13, 3-9. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some seed fell alongside the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky patches where there was not much soil. It sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun had risen, the young plants were scorched. Since their roots were not deep, they dried up. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. But others fell into rich soil and produced grain a hundred or sixty or thirty times as much as had been sown. Those who have ears, let them hear." Now the same parable is found in Mark 4 and in Luke 8, and they are nearly identical. In fact, I think whatever minor differences might be found between them can surely be accounted for by the editing that naturally occurs over time by interpreters and language trans translators. We always need to pay attention to the numbers that are involved in, in a Bible story. Now, while it's not so in every single case, in the vast majority of cases, the numbers used are important to the meaning. Here, the number four is prominent, four kinds of soil. Why? Is Jesus trying to say there's exactly four kinds of soil, four types of ground that the seed can fall upon? No. It's because the number four in Hebrew gematria represents the four corners of the earth in the same way there is four compass directions. Thus, the use of four indicates that the point of the parable applies universally throughout the earth, no matter where, no matter who. And the other point to notice is that the same seed is coming from the same sower. This further advances the reality that the differences of reaction and response are not the result of the farmer or the seed, but rather of the soil that it falls upon. Well, after telling the parable, Christ tells his disciples how to understand it. Now, this happens in verses 18 through 23, which we'll get into in the next lesson. However, I want to take a moment to speak to you about the last few words of the parable that are, Those who have ears, let them hear. See, this is a Jewish saying that Yeshua uses several times. 
The Jewish people he is speaking to know exactly what he means. It is used occasionally as a way to highlight an especially important teaching. We must never, in such context, think of the terms hear and listen synonymously. Listening is a passive activity. We take in sounds through our ear organs, they're converted into electrical impulses that stimulates our brains. But the concept of hearing comes from the Hebrew word Shema, which means to act upon what's heard. That is, listening that produces an active response. Therefore, in Hebrew expression, a person who has ears is one who not only listens to instructions, but acts upon them. Now, another possible element of this parable that not ought be overlooked. I think it's connected to Isaiah chapter 53, one of the most amazing and dramatic prophecies in the Bible. Now, we'll not read the entire chapter, but I do want to quote you just a few verses. See, the context of this chapter of Isaiah revolves around the suffering servant, which turns out to be Messiah Yeshua. I'm going to quote from the King James Version because in this instance it offers a much more literal, literal translation of the Hebrew than in the complete Jewish Bible. And this literalness is very important to understanding its meaning and its effect. So here's Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 through 10. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In Isaiah 53, verse 10, the Hebrew word serah is used. In the literal English translation, it is seed. Zerah is seed. Serah is used in a number of ways in the Bible, from meaning seeds just like are planted in the ground and they grow up into plants, or it can mean one's offspring, one's children. The term is regularly used metaphorically, and it's also used in a spiritual sense. So for instance, in Isaiah 53, we have the suffering servant being tortured and killed, placed into a grave, and yet the prophecy is, he will see his seed he will see his offspring. Now, if this was meant as something that takes place purely in human terms in the physical dimension, then we'd have a conflict at best, something nonsensical at worst. I mean, how can a dead person see his offspring, see his children, meaning that he'd be with them? But as prophecies often do, the physical realm gets mixed up with the spiritual realm. And sometimes, 
only the passage of time and the fulfillment of the prophecy reveals which part of that mix was physical, which part was spiritual. So in Isaiah 53, the seed of the suffering servant is more spiritual than physical, and yet the spiritual manifests itself among and within physical human beings. Thus, it's not that the suffering servant was to be married to a woman in the human manner of marriage and then produce physical offspring. Rather, his seed that he will see represents those humans that are connected to him spiritually because of trust in his act of self-sacrifice as a sin offering. The seed of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament turns out to be the countless members of the Kingdom of Heaven of the New Testament. They are made members by their trust in Yeshua as their crucified Savior, the one who atones as a sin offering for our sins. So here's the connection to the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. The sower, or the farmer, is God's agent, Yeshua. The seed is the Word of God, the truth that falls on all humans alike, but it receives different responses. The soil that reacts to the seed in the proper way becomes members of the Kingdom of Heaven. Thus, the seed of God, His Word, produces the seed of the suffering servant both spiritually and physically. Next time we'll begin with Christ's disciples' strange question to their Master and His response to it.